Father God, we thank you for this morning and um, we're grateful for your grace. And what we're going to see this morning is that we don't bring anything to you that's impressive. Um, but yet you love us and you've died for us and, and you've uh, redeemed us and brought us back to you. Lord, would the gospel come out clearly today as we, as we walk through the psalm you have for us. And we pray um, that our hearts would be convicted where that needs to happen, but that we would be convert, encouraged where that needs to happen too. And, and we just ask for your grace in all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 53. All right. So Psalm 53 is not traditionally a very happy psalm, okay? And you may have, maybe you re- heard Chad reading that for us this morning as our call to worship, and it is kind of, a, it's kind of weird if you're like listening to it, you're like, this is, this is just kind of like not good. <laughs> like, it's all sort of sad and, and um, not a pretty picture. Um, but here's, here's what this psalm is. Um, this psalm is a portrait of the human race. It's a portrait of human beings. But here's the thing. This portrait is not a pleasant one. The human race, the hu- human beings do not have um, anything within us by nature and by choice that is good and honorable to the Lord. We, we just don't. Like on our, our default mode is, is not pleasant. It's sin. It's sinful. It's separated from God. And what this psalm is trying to point out is that reality. It's trying to show us the truth about who we are. Because until we get to a point where we can uh, acknowledge the truth about who we are, we're never going to get to a point where we feel we need a Savior. And so the Bible does a masterful job at knocking us down a few pegs or a few flights of stairs in some cases. Um, and, And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. The, the Bible is honest. Jesus is honest with us. And, and, and so I think when we, when we can kind of separate our emotions from this and, and the, the offense that we're going to feel at the, chari- at the characterization of the human race, um, as we kind of get past that emotional response, we're going to see that this is a great thing for us to know. Uh, because it leads into the very nature and character of, of God. And, and we do need to hear this message. We, we all do. We need the reminder of it over and over again because we live in a world right now where, where it's kind of weird. It's sort of a weird time to live because on one hand, everyone is convinced that everybody is this inherently good, precious little snowflake that, that can you know, do anything they want but then you get onto YouTube and you read the comment section. <laughs> Have you ever done that? It's horrible. Like, absolutely, the things, the vile things that people will say. Um, I remember, uh, this was a little while back, there was a viral video. Um, Rebecca Black um, was this teenage girl who came up with a song called Friday, and I'm not going to sing it for you because you'll all kill me. Um, it was not a great song, right? It was not like, it wasn't very good, but it was a teenage girl's, you know, she was like 13 and she was just having fun and she just got destroyed by the internet. It was just like, and you know, the internet's made up of people, right? Human beings like came around this 13 year old girl and just crushed her. I mean, she, she's, talked it, she's talked about it and it almost led her into uh, suicidal depression. I mean, it's, 
It's a nasty world. And yet at the same time, we, we don't want to believe that. And we want to just believe that everything's good and wonderful. And so wh- what we need is the truth. We need the word of God to speak. And, and we see on, in the word of God that it is true that human beings are not inherently good. But what's also equally true is that God is good and he loves people who are not good. And that's what we're going to see this morning. So um, let's, uh, let's get into this. We're going to look at Psalm 53. We're going to just take it kind of a section at a time. And then we're going to dive over to Romans 3 and, and tie this all back into to the gospel and who Jesus is and what he's done. So let's read verses 1 through 3, kind of just get this... Uh, get the big picture here for the first section. It says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and they do vile deeds. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. All right, so that's a pretty rough picture, right? That's, that, that is a universal, across-the-board claim at our situation as human beings. This is universally saying that everyone is inherently sinful, not good. Not perfect, not what we ought to be. Now, I want us to clarify something here because this does not mean that we are all as bad as we can possibly be, right? That's, that's not what this means. It doesn't mean that every single human being is as wicked and as horrible and acts out as horribly as they have the capacity to do that. There is something uh, about common grace, this grace that God gives to all people that, that instills in us a conscience and, and a recognition that, you know, we, we shouldn't actually act out all the, all the intentions of our hearts. But just because we have some ability to hold back doesn't mean that the capacity's not there, right? It's, it's in us. It's just that we have this, this kindness from God that we can pull back the reins and not live as bad as we could possibly live. But, but just because we're not as bad as we could be doesn't mean we're not guilty of rebellion against God. And that's really what this psalm, the first three verses, is getting at. That we are um, all guilty of rebelling against how God has uh, created us to be, which is he wanted us to be perfect. He created us in perfection and in absolute sinlessness, but rebellion came in. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's good design. And as a result, all of their offspring from that point on have been guilty of this rebellion. But the reason that we don't always see it that way, or that we look around the world and we go, you know, there's good things, right? There's good people. Uh, that's true, right? There are, there, you don't have to be a Christian to uh, love people because God's made you in his image, So there are non-Christian firefighters who will risk their own lives to save someone from a burning building. There are people who are inherently sinful that are capable of good things. That's true. 
But that doesn't take away from our, our need at the end of the day. Um, and, and it's very easy for us as well to kind of look around the world and look at ourselves and go, yeah, okay, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person. We do that all the time, right? We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people. And, and the way that I kind of think about this is, um, is that, th- that that's, not the, that's not the metric, right? That's not the comparison that we're supposed to have. Our comparison should be from us to God. How do we measure up to God? Because here's what happens when we measure up to someone else. We look at another person across the room or across the neighborhood or, or whatever, and we go, I'm not as bad as them, and we make this connection that therefore I'm good or I'm better or I don't have a problem because I'm not as bad as someone else. But that, that whole idea, that whole argument is as flawed as somebody saying to the person next door to them that has a car that doesn't start that my car is better even though the brakes don't work. Right? It's a sick, like, what good is it to have a car that runs without brakes versus a car that doesn't run at all? It, it, these are both problems and big problems, right? So you can make those compare, and you would, you would talk to the guy that said, yeah, my car's better than yours, being proud and braggy about that because their car starts but then won't stop. Um, <laughs> it's not helpful, right? You, just, you would look at that person and go, really? You should probably maybe fix your brakes before you, you know, judge this guy whose car won't start. Um, that, that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking at one broken person, comparing them to us, who are also broken people, and going, well, I'm not as broken as them. So that means I'm not broken. Does that logic work? No, of course not. We, we are broken, but we have different degrees of brokenness in our world. And so really the, the purpose of these first few verses is to, to make sure that we understand that compared to the perfection of God, we do not measure up. When we compare ourselves to who Jesus is and his goodness and, and his perfection, then, then, we, then we just have to throw in all the cards and go, okay, I'm not there. Because that's what we're ultimately up against. We've got to compare ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ. And when you compare yourself to him, you fall short. You do. We all do. And, and that's what I think the psalm is getting at, is that compared to who God is, um, none of us measure up. We might measure up somewhat better than another person, but we will not be what we are supposed to be. And I, I love that in verse 2, it says here, God looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise. Even just one. I'm just looking for one wise person in the world. Or one who seeks for God. And what's the answer? The beginning of verse 3 says, nope, all have turned aside. All. God can look down from heaven on the human race and go, all are fools. All are fools. All are turning away from God. Universally, that's true. All of us have. Now, if you're in this room today and you're a Christian, that's because God's grace has intervened in your life and has called you to return. And we're going to get there in a, in a little bit. But let's, let's go on to verses 4 and 5 
and see where this continues. So the first few verses address the, the universal need that we have for, uh, for God's goodness. Verses 4 and 5, here's what it says. Will evildoers never understand? They consume my people as they consume bread. They do not call on God. Then they will be filled with dread, dread like no other, because God will scatter the bones of those who besiege you. You will put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Now, those verses are, are telling us simply this, that, that because of our inherent um, sinfulness, we are under judgment. Uh, we, are, we have to, we have to like, deal with this, this offense that we've committed against God. And I, and I know that that's not a, a pleasant thought, right? That we have, wait a minute, we have, to, we have to come to terms with this. We have to reckon with, with the God who created the world and we're all going to come out on the losing side of that. We all know we will. But here's the thing. See, sin, as the, uh, the late R.C. Sproul uh, once said, that sin is, a, is, is cosmic treason against the king of the universe. And so every act of rebellion, every act of sinfulness, every act of corruption that's in our hearts or in our actions is, is an act of treason against the God of the universe. And, and we all know that treason needs to be dealt with, right? It can't continue to go on and on. And God has to deal with this. And that is a, a bleak picture for us if we're left to our own devices. If we're left on our own there is no hope in this, right? There's no way that we can, can actually go against God and come out victorious. We can't do it. And so this is painting a very bleak picture. But here's the good news. The psalm doesn't end on that note. Verse 6 is a beautiful, uh, hope-filled verse that really helps us to segue into the gospel, Look at verse 6. It says, Oh, that Israel's deliverance would come from Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. This is an interesting verse in, in the context of the psalm, right? Because the psalm is like basically telling us just how horrible we are and how under judgment we are. And then it ends with, Oh, but there's good news. Deliverance, freedom, restoration, it's coming. And it's going to come from Zion. It's going to come from God himself. He's going to restore his people. He, and, and because of that promise, we can rejoice and we can be glad. And verse 6 reminds us of this, this fact, that we are sinners, but we uh, need a Savior, and that Savior is our, our God himself. Say our, savior, our salvation comes not from our attempts at making things right with God, but in God's work of restoring his people. That, that's where, that is where our hope has to be laid and found. If, if we are trying to work our way into a right relationship with God, we will always fail. But the gospel isn't that message. The gospel is not work your way into a better relationship with God. The gospel is not try harder to be a good person. 
The gospel is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's, that's the gospel. And, and so we have this good news that, that Israel's deliverance will come from Zion, that God will restore the fortunes of his people. And, and God is at work in this. And this is, again, like we've seen in every psalm we've looked at so far this summer, we're looking at how does this connect to Jesus? How does Jesus get into this psalm? And where is he at? And this, he's in verse 6. That's where he is. Because the deliverance that comes from Zion is Jesus. That's who this is talking about. And, and we get to see that clearly in the book of Romans chapter 3. So if you want to turn back there or turn forward to that. Um, Romans chapter 3 is where Paul lays out this case. And, and he actually does this by using the very psalm that we just read through. He actually directly quotes from uh, Psalm 53. And, um, and so we're gonna, you're going to hear some very similar language. Um, and there's kind of a section within Romans 3 where Paul just kind of quotes a whole bunch of the Psalms. He's kind of cherry-picking from a lot of different ones to make his case. But what he's trying to prove here is that we are, um, without God's help, we are in serious trouble, but there's good news that we can see. So we're going to start with... Um, well, let's just start in verse 1. I suppose that'll probably be the best, best route to go here. Um, I'll read this quickly. We won't spend a ton of time on it, but here's what it says. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then? If some were unfaithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true even though everyone is a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is, God's, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I also still uh, being judged as a sinner? And why not just as some people slanderously claim, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. Now, okay, in those first uh, eight verses or so, what Paul's trying to make the case of is that everyone is, uh, is uh, hopelessly lost. What, regardless of what family you were born into, regardless of uh, your ethnicity, every single person in the world is, uh, is lost in sin. Even though there are some advantages that the Jewish people had over the Gentiles, namely they had the word of God and they had the promises of God and they should have seen it um, when, where they really didn't see it in the time of Jesus. They should have seen it. It was there. But here's the thing. Paul's making this point that our unrighteousness, our sinfulness, highlights God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's perfection. And, and that God, because he's perfect and righteous, has every right in the world to inflict his anger and wrath on sinners. He has every right to do that. He wouldn't be unjust to do that. That's, what, that's what the point that Paul's trying to make. So verse 9 says, What then? Are we any better off? Not at all. 
for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. So he, he's trying to make sure that his Gentile readers understand that being Jewish doesn't put you in a better position to know Christ. Uh, you're, we're all on the same playing field here. There are advantages to being Jewish because you have the history and the promises and the word of God in the Old Testament, but it doesn't make you better off in your position with God. He says, all are under sin. As it is written, and here we go. This is where we're going to see the psalm that we just read. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Then he goes on and he pulls from a few other psalms. He says, Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So he quotes a whole bunch of verses there, and he's just making the case that we're all sinners in need of uh, a Savior. He says, Then now we know that wherever the law, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified, that is made righteous before God. We talked about that last week. No one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. So Paul says, here's the problem. We're all sinners, but we can't fix ourselves because we can't get ourselves to God through the works of the law. We're not able to do that. No one will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. Because what the law does, he goes on to say here, is it, it works like a mirror. The law shows us our sin. The law shows us how bad we are. Because when you go through, you can just do, do this on your own sometime. Go through the Ten Commandments and count off the number that you've broken. All right? Probably most of them, at some point in your life. Now, you may, you may be able to say, well, I've never murdered anyone. That's the one we always like grasp onto like as tightly as we can. Here's the problem there. Jesus goes on to tell us that if you've ever hated someone, you've murdered them in your heart. And so you're still guilty of that. And then, then so the whole thing just kind of blows up in our face. None of us are inherently righteous. That's Paul's point. And none of us can use the law to get there because all the law does is it shows us our sin. So what's the hope? I am getting there. Here. So Paul's going to get us there, which is in the next couple verses here. So he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. What he's talking about there is there's no distinction between Jews and and Gentiles as as it relates to our standing before God. We're all under sin. We're all hopelessly lost, except for We all have access to Jesus who lived perfectly, who was attested to by the law and the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament 
like we're seeing today, points us to Jesus. And that's what Paul's point is. So righteousness from God is through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, how do we get right with God? How do we actually take this, this badness that's been described in Psalm 53 off of us? How do we get it removed from us? How do we live in the, the hope that we have in Jesus? It is through faith in him. There's no distinction for all have sinned, he says, and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, right? This is the point that the psalm is making. All have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. But they are justified. They are made righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. As God presented him an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's restraint, he passed over sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. This is incredible good news. We start with the bad news, right? We have to start there. We have to, we have to get to a point where we realize our need. If we don't recognize what our need is, we're never going to recognize that Jesus is our hope. And so, yeah, we have to start kind of with this sad reality, but the Bible doesn't leave us in that hopelessness. What it tells us, what Paul's telling us in uh, chapter 3 is that our unrighteousness does not deter God from sending Jesus into the world to be the righteousness of God for us. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you and I could never live. He did it completely. And so then what he does is he freely offers us this grace, this unmerited favor that, that we have to cling to in faith to be made right with God. And that is our hope that God has given to us all of his righteousness because he is good and gracious. So here's the fact. The, the way to a right relationship with God is not through self-congratulations or back, uh, backpatting but it's through humble acknowledgement of our need for Jesus. That's really the summation of what Paul's getting at in Romans 3. We can try to congratulate ourselves for not being as broken as the person next to us. Or we can acknowledge that our brokenness is the same as theirs. It may manifest in a different way, but it's the same as theirs. And because of that, what we need inherently is not to just say, I'm better than that person, but to say, I need Jesus to be my righteousness, to be my hope. And here's the good news for us today. This is, I, I, we have to get to good news, right? And the good news for us today is this, that Jesus is everything we need and all that we need to have Jesus is nothing. Isn't that good news? 
because it's good news that all we need is nothing because that's all we actually have. <laughs> like we don't have anything. We don't have anything impressive. And so the fact that we, we can try as much as we can to hand Jesus our, our self-righteousness, but he's going to turn his nose up at it because it's not what he, he desires. There, there's, a, there's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about how our righteousness is filthy rags. It's filthy rags. And so picture that analogy there for a minute. Like, if all we have to offer Jesus are filthy rags, do you think he's going to be, like, happy with that? No, what, we're, we're going to Jesus with these rags and saying, hey, you know, this is impressive, right? Isn't this great? I'm giving these to you. He's going to go, I don't want those filthy rags. We've got to drop the rags. We've got to drop the self-righteousness, and we've got to just lean into him with nothing in our hands. All we need is need. All we need is, and that's, and the good news is that Jesus accepts us even with nothing in our hands. But here's the other thing. He only accepts us with nothing in our hands. He does. Because if all we have in our hands is filth, he's got to clean those hands. He's got to drop, we got to drop those and he takes us as we are. This, This is the amazing thing is that the God of the universe who created every one of us and, and knows every one of us better than we know ourselves. He sees you, he knows you, he knows me in all of our wickedness, in all of our capacity for evil, in everything that we think, every thought that comes through our mind. And, and the reality is every one of us, if we, were, if we somehow lived our lives where every thought that crossed our minds was broadcast, we'd all be thrown out into like a leper colony or something. Like we'd, we'd all be cast out of society and pretty soon nobody would be left. <laughs> but thankfully, by God's grace, we can keep some things to ourselves. Yet God knows every thought that crosses our mind, every vile thing, every broken thing, and yet he loves us and he died for us. And he came to be our righteousness for us. That's what's so amazing. It's not amazing for us to pretend that we're not bad. What's amazing is that we have a perfect God who loves us even though we are. And he accepts us. So the emphasis of the Bible is not on our inherent goodness, but it's on the goodness of Jesus. And so what we cling to as Christians is that Jesus is good And his goodness then is applied to us. It's given to us. But it's not our goodness, it's his. He is the good, perfect king that we cling to. So uh, all of this, I I know it can can be kind of a, a, a downer if we don't get to Jesus. And that's why we always get to Jesus. (laughs) Because the good news is that we have him, even if we have nothing else. We have him. And he's the one who has lived the perfect life to make us right with him. What good news to celebrate today. And, and here's the practical side of that, is that when we know, when we know that we are right with God because of the righteousness of Jesus, suddenly we have a whole new world 
of freedom before us. We are actually free. We're free to live for him. We're free to obey and free to, to uh, do what he calls us to do without the, the guilt of, you know, feeling like we have to do this to earn his love. We're instead empowered and freed to do what he wants us to do because he's accepted us at our worst and he will always accept us at our worst. And I'll just close with this one reminder for you of the, of the parable of the prodigal son. Real quickly, you guys might know this story, you probably do, but it's Jesus shares a story about a man, a young man who, uh, who runs away from home, takes his inheritance from his father and runs and squanders it. And he gets to a point where he has no more money, he has no more friends, he's lived a reckless life. And he decides the only thing that he has left to do is to come home. And to basically come home and eat his words and live a lowly, pathetic life as a servant. And he's just resigned himself to that. So he gets home and instead of being placed into a position of servanthood and, and uh, <clears throat> in a lower level of the family, instead what we see is the father runs to him and embraces him and puts the ring on his finger, puts shoes on his feet, puts the family robe on him and throws him a party because his son was dead and now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. And that Jesus tells us that story to, to show us that our, that our deepest and worst rebellion does not stop God's grace and faithfulness to us. And so as we turn to Jesus and run back to him, no matter what you've done this week, no matter where you've come from this week, Jesus is there, open arms, running to you and bringing you in and putting, on, putting you in the best clothes and celebrating your return. That is all possible because Jesus is our righteousness. And, and that's what we celebrate today. So let me pray for us. And then we're going to take some time to sing of the goodness of Jesus, to celebrate in that truth, and to partake of the table of communion as well. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for your uh, amazing love. Love that would um, overcome every wickedness of our hearts. We just pray, Lord, that our, that our response to you today would be to drop our pretense, to drop any sense of self-righteousness, to come to you with empty hands, knowing that you receive us and accept us, and that you've done that through Jesus, and we pray it in his name. Amen.